The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we work each and every week to bring you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And thank goodness we're not one of those radio shows that broadcast on YouTube. Have you seen those? Like, like people like record podcasts, but then they're like recording themselves recording podcasts on YouTube. Because if you saw what went on behind the scenes here, you would be very impressed. <laughs> there was a, there was a literally a five second mic switch out by Mike as we were coming on the air today because <laughs> the other one kept falling down. So anyway. Um, before we get to our big topic this evening, I got to put a call out to all the ladies, especially those who are getting started in real estate investing or in the beginning years of their, of doing that at tomorrow night, Cincinnati RIA meeting. It is a panel called women who are rocking the real estate world. And of course, guys are welcome. Don't, don't let anybody send me an email saying, oh, you're doing something for the women only. If we did that for the men only, then you'd be mad. If y'all don't think you can learn something from a bunch of chicks who are making big money in the real estate business, guys, you're wrong. So anyway, back to the ladies. Um, these are some very inspiring folks. They do everything from wholesaling to retailing to renting to Airbnbs to creative financing. They've, you know, put up, put up with the same sort of struggles that you probably have and they've made it work. And it's just a panel discussion. So we'll talk to them about how they made it work and what they're doing right now and what they think of the market and what challenges they're having. And, uh, y'all. Everyone within listening radius of me, which is everyone in the entire world, is invited to attend. It's CincinnatiRia.com to get your ticket. CincinnatiRia.com. It's a Zoom link. It's not. It's, it's an online meeting. Um, members and first-time guests are, as always, free. So CincinnatiRia.com. If you want to stop by a little early at six o'clock, we've got member Jason Matthews. See, fellas. We're not going all PC here. We've got a guy speaking to. He's going to be talking about um, how he arbitrages Airbnbs. So he's renting other people's properties and then renting them out as Airbnbs and then taking the profit out of the middle. And he's also got his life worked out so that he's arranging that other people pay for the furniture. So if you've been looking or drooling over getting into the Airbnb business 
And uh, you're like, yeah, as soon as I get enough money, turns out maybe you don't need hardly any money to do that. Jason Matthews talk about that at six. Same link, CincinnatiRia.com. Click the button, fill out the form. It'll get you a ticket and you can join us tomorrow night. Today, however, we are talking about a topic that we have never discussed here on real life real estate investing. And that is a co-living type of situation where you take a single family house and you rent it out by the bedroom. And you know what? I'm just going to let our guest today explain how all of that works. But as you can imagine, there is some big profit in doing this. My guest today is Mr. Frank Furman, who is going to be making his first appearance at the Oria National Real Estate Strategy Summit coming up here in the month of November in Cincinnati. I actually think you can still grab a ticket to that at wmkvfm.org if you like. Uh, Frank has been doing this for a little while in a few areas. He's the co-founder and chief growth officer of a company called PadSplit. That's a shared housing marketplace technology company. Boy, that's a lot of words. And uh, what they do is they help people do what he's about to talk about, the possibility of you doing. He's joining us from his home in Atlanta. Frank, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. (laughs) You're so welcome. You sound confused. You're like, I've been on other radio shows and they've been all like formal and stuff. And she's talking about microphone problems (laughs) and... What, what's going on here? Yeah, we, uh, we're, 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 uh, we're maybe a little looser that's, here. That's pretty much the norm for those two. So I'll, <laughs> I'll get, I'm, uh, I actually, uh, I'm not calling from my home in Atlanta. I'm calling from the beautiful eastern shore of Maryland. But where, ah. uh, where we're staying, I had to pull off on the side of the road to get good cell phone reception. So it's, uh, I'm having my own mic issues. So ah, well, no that's always fun. We can both have mic issues. That'll be fun for the listeners. Exactly. Um, okay, so let's, let's just, let's just, like start out with what brought you to this place where you're you're running a company that helps people mm-hmm. do this strange thing that is actually kind of an awesome idea in the face of the fact that everybody has been screaming that there's not enough housing for 10 years and now you've come up with this thing where you can get more housing into one house Sure. So like with uh, most things in life, I, I stumbled into it. So I, uh, and really that's kind of the, the story of Padslet. So the idea was really that of my uh, co-founder, one of my co-founders, Alex Salar, CEO. You know, he's always been in real estate, you know, his whole career, but he started buying up houses after the crash and he's buying in Atlanta and you know, he bought this house. It was you know, inexpensive because he was buying it in 2009. And the two neighbors came by, you know, Mr. Otis and Mr. Mitch, and they said, hey, you know, our house is being foreclosed on. We're being kicked out, and we want to we want to rent rooms in your house. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'm, I'm renting it out. It's a single-family home. And they said, well, we'll pay you 100 bucks a week apiece. And he's looking at the house, and it's four bedrooms. He knows he can get 800 from the housing authority. And he's doing the math, and he's like, okay, you know, let's give it a try. And, uh, you know, along the way, so I've, you know, Atticus is, is my brother-in-law, so I've known for 
uh, for uh, going on 15 years now. And, you know, he built this sort of string of uh, successful real estate companies that I invested in a number of the projects. But I was moving around. I was in, in the Marine Corps and then uh, worked for a consulting company. And you know, it was always kind of, uh, you know, not involved in the operating side, but uh, sort of involved in his business generally and observing. And, you know, I moved to Atlanta about five years ago. And we both kind of at the point where you know, kind of looking for the next thing and, and say, hey, I've had this idea kicking around in the back of my mind for years about shared housing. You know, I've done it. I've been doing it for seven years. It, it's really gone well. It's really high yield. And there are certain things that are hard about it and hard to scale and, and you know, hard operationally. But, you know, I think it'd be really big. And, and we were kind of at this point in history where it was just that certain things were coming together. You know, part of it was the national conversation around affordable housing, which kept, you know, incrementally getting harder and harder and became more on people's radar. Uh, part of it was technology in 2009 when this, uh, when he did the first house, it was a cash business. You know, you're doing money orders. People are, you know, dropping cash in a, a metal box in the house. Um, and now everyone can pay electronically. Everyone has a smartphone, you know, so a lot has changed there. And then frankly, there's, you know, there's been changes on the on the legal front, uh, both in terms of case law and how people are thinking about zoning and so on that that facilitate things on that side. So, you know, in 2017, started to try and make a go of it. So, again, you know, bit by bit, piece by piece, kind of started out then. Third co-founder, uh, John O'Brien, is really our, our technical co-founder and our CTO today. And just started growing the business from there and, and learning as, as you go um, and you know, we built out from Atlanta and then since have expanded the markets. But, you know, really, I think what kind of got us into it was, you know, this is not a new idea. You know, people come to us all the time and they say, oh, you know, I, you know who would understand this is, is my kids. And you say, no, your grandmother would get it. You know, this is how people used to live, singles and, and so on, really before, uh, you know, laws around zoning changed in the 70s. This was very common. In fact, in certain parts of the country during World War II, you were required to add a boarding unit anytime you were building because the idea was, you know, where are these young men, these young women going to live? They can't live on their own. It wouldn't make sense. Um, you know, they need to live with another family. They need to live and rent a room in a house. Um, and it's also something that everyone understands from their own lives. I mean, when, when, I was a, when I was in grad school, I rented a room. You know, it's something that people do. When I was in the Marine Corps, I rented a house and, you know, me and a couple of buddies would, uh, you know, split the rent. It's something that people do to save money when they aren't high income. It's something I do today. I have six people in my house, it's, you know, it's for my family, right? But I share space. I share a bathroom. This is, this is part of life. So this idea of everyone having their own space, their own rentable unit is kind of a new idea, really. And this is, this is kind of the way things have always been. And a big part of what we wanted to do was bring those same sort of techniques that everyone else does to save money the families do that uh, higher income folks do the students do and democratize and bring it to everyone right mm -hmm. and that was how we kind of started out with it and kind of built from there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so from real estate to the idea of how do we take take advantage of and i i hate saying that that term because every time it comes out of my mouth of course what i mean is how do we turn it into an advantage <laughs> that sure. that that uh this is already going on i mean there was the five years ago i remember i started seeing things about 
uh, millennials who had jobs in Silicon Valley and they were really good jobs, but it was so expensive to live there that they couldn't rent an apartment even with their really good starter salaries. And so they were, they were taking it upon themselves. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't the housing provider who was doing this. They were taking it upon themselves that they would rent an apartment and then they would agree that, you know, everybody who has a bed pays X dollars per month and you just kind of took that and systematized it and are now bringing it out to people. So a very cool strategy and I want to talk a lot more about it after we take a break, but I also want to make sure that listeners know how to get a hold of us so that they can ask you questions because listeners will call me next week and ask me questions (laughs) about it. All I'm going to know about it is what Frank said this week. So if you, if you have questions, man, Call them in, send them in. The phone number is 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. You can also send a question via email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Frank Furman, who is the co-founder of pad splits, which is a thing that that's what we're talking about today is what is that? You know, th- th- think about it folks as a co-housing arrangement, a co-living arrangement that instead of you like just finding somebody who's got a bunch of buddies that want to move into the house and like they all agree to sign one lease and you know how that turns out, Right. One of them gets mad at the other one and moves out, and then the other four don't want to pay the full rent, even though they all signed the lease that said they would all pay the full rent. So it's a little, it's more controlled than that. It's a little bit like the old um, boarding house situation that you used to see back, wow, way up through the 50s and 60s, but but not quite because there's not a house mom living there, making meals and whatnot. It's not quite short term rental because it's not short term it's a, it's a really interesting hybrid that uh at least frank and the folks who work with him are making a lot of money doing so let's start frank with kind of the 101 here what kind of what kind of properties are really ideal if i wanted to do a pad split right so relative to other single family rentals we tend to skew towards larger properties where you can have more bedrooms because that's really a revenue generating unit. Um, Other than that, you know, we tend to like to be close to public transit or employment centers. Um, The idea being that's the, that's where you want to be. That's where the high demand is. Um, Many of the, the, of our customers in this demographic take public transit. That's a big benefit to them. Cuts down on the number of cars that are needed. Um, And it is just really Think about it through the lens of uh, a renter who's a single in the workforce rather than, say, a family. So most uh, single-family homes, obviously, were built for families, right? So they they tend to be quiet. You know, you think about school districts, they tend to be away from commercial centers, Um, whereas, uh, you know, a good example is just being on a busy street. If you're renting for a family, you might not want to be on a busy street. You know, too much traffic, you worry about kids, you know, you worry about too much foot traffic. Whereas a single renting a room in a house, that's the benefit. You know, you're closer to places to eat, places to get groceries, that kind of thing. So we tend to like bigger areas, busier areas are closer to kind of uh, transit and employment centers. But ultimately, you know, we're in single family, we're multifamily. 
Um, we're relatively agnostic as far as the platform works, but in terms of my advising investors, you tend to look bigger and, and a little bit busier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it sounds like the more bedrooms, the better. Yep. I would suspect that... I mean, to, to a point, sure. <laughs> yes, okay. So, <laughs> sure. So I assume that the more bathrooms, the better. Because exactly. these folks yep. share yep. these folks share whatever bathroom or bathrooms are there, right? Right. I mean, the you know the one of the secrets about affordable housing is you you know you start with affordable housing, so it's uh, you know you're you're starting with in most cases, I and mean, we have we have people doing built to rent, and that's that can be a very successful strategy. In which case, you're you're optimizing from the start. But what most investors are doing is taking an existing property and doing the best that they can to optimize it for co-living. And sometimes that means adding a bathroom. Sometimes that works, you know, finishing out a basement or that kind of thing to add additional space. But, you know, usually you're starting and ending with the bathroom count that you have. And so if there's a private bath and sort of master bedroom, great. That's something that gets reflected in price. People are willing to pay a fair amount more, typically a 30 to 50 percent premium to have a private bath. Um, but everything else, yeah, shared. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so far I have heard you say... <clears throat> When you were describing how your uh, partner did his first one, that it, the rent was paid by the week. Yep. And I've heard you say we want to be close to buses because a lot of these folks don't have cars. And also, yep. even even a five-bedroom, three-bath home would not have enough parking for five cars necessarily. And I think that maybe our uh, listeners are probably starting to think, oh, he's housing like transients. He's he's getting people who are coming in for one week and then they're they're out and that is not the impression that we're, we we right. should give them because that's not the case. Exactly. These are these are long term renters. Uh, they're people who live and work in in the community, but oftentimes are really just in a position where they can't afford their own apartment, um, and that could be for lots of reasons. Um, some of it is just pure income. I mean, the, the way to think about it is. Almost any landlord is requiring typically three times uh, rent as income. So you can imagine someone who's working full time but making you know thirty or thirty five thousand dollars a year, well, that doesn't qualify you for very much. Um, and in a lot of metro areas, you know, realistically, you need to be you know your classy apartments, you know, studio apartments might be nine hundred bucks. And if you're making thirty thousand dollars a year, you don't you don't qualify for that. Um, some of it is just a question of flexibility and that. You know, signing a year-long lease, which is typically your minimum, is is a big barrier for people in in the workforce and kind of demographic that our customers are in. You tend to have a lot more job flux. So we have people who you know, they may be with us for two years, but they may transfer houses in the middle of it. You know, because they want that flexibility. If they're making eighteen bucks an hour on this side of town and they get nineteen bucks an hour on the other side, they may want to move and be closer to work. So. So that flexibility is a big uh, part of our value proposition. Um, but it's definitely not transient. I mean, we do tend to have uh, a lot of customers who are new to town for work. And the reason that we're a compelling option for them is it's it's fully furnished units. So that makes it easier to move in. And it is more flexible terms. You don't have to sign up for a year. You know, maybe you stay for six months and that's fine. But minimum stays a month. That's kind of the min term that people are signing up for. Average stays about 10 months. So, yeah, it's definitely not... Uh, people on vacation it's not people who are just coming in for a day or a week or or anything like that so Mm -hmm. it's 
these are these are people who have jobs and kind of work locally. Wow, I'm I'm thinking right now about New Orleans and mm-hmm. all the damage they just had. And last time mm-hmm. this happened, they had twenty five thousand workers that came yep. down there to fix stuff that needed housing for a year, year and a half and couldn't get it because the hotels were closed down because, you know, flooding and whatnot. And what an opportunity this could be for somebody in New Orleans to house some needed people who need furniture and stuff provided for them. And they they, they know they're not going to stay for more than six months to two years Yep, to fix this it, stuff. Indeed, we, we're doing that in New Orleans today. So we have, uh, we have active units there for that. For that purpose, and same thing actually in in Houston and kind of uh, that that sort of area through Galveston and Texas City. Um, so yes, that's that is also part of our customer base. And this this actually brings to mind a story that I have forgotten about that I was hearing from a lot of my Northeast Ohio colleagues for a while when they were first laying the uh, groundwork for the fracking that was happening. They they needed. They needed like specialized workers to come in and set up all the equipment, right? And it was only it only went on for about a year or two. And a lot of them were telling stories about, well, it's the weirdest thing. I'm I'm I've got this little ranch house that's never made more than seven hundred and fifty dollars a month, and now I've got the four bedrooms rented out to four different guys at four hundred dollars a month, and it's it's crazy. <laughs> like I'm making all this yep. money on it. So there's all kinds of reasons that people would want to just live in one room. You know, and share everything yep. else. Another another one is, if I am, if my goal in working in this town is so that I can send my money, as much money as I can, back to my parents, my children, my mm-hmm. whatever. Maybe I'm choosing to live as cheap as I can because I've got some other goal with my money, or maybe I'm saving it up to buy a house. Who knows? So, uh, I can think of lots of different demographics for this sort of setup. So, so what all is included in the tenant's rent? You said you you furnish the bedrooms, and I assume you furnish the living room and dining room and all that stuff, too. Is there anything else? Yep. So it's, it's, the idea is to make it as simple as possible for, for the customer and kind of roll it all into one. So they're furnished. it's a furnished room, uh, laundry, utilities, Wi-Fi. We also include telehealth um, at, at no charge to customers, but all, all kind of rolled into that one bill. Mm-hmm. So... Cable, internet. So it, Wi-Fi, yes. We don't do cable. Um, that's actually, again, doing this for several years. You get into some of the how do you optimize for um, ease of operations, and the challenge with cable one is now kind of everyone can use Wi-Fi. It's a little bit easier, and so on. But you don't have to deal with cable boxes or anything else. So we found that Wi-Fi is pretty effective. It, it kind of satisfies satisfies the need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you don't have to worry about tracking cable boxes or anything, anything like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Financing. If I if I wanted to go out and buy one of these, and I wanted to get one of these sweet, sweet Fannie Mae three point seven five percent investor loans, would I be able to get it on this property? So, in general, the answer is yes. There's uh, there are definitely lenders who are not comfortable with essentially the variability of cash flows, it's not that dissimilar from what many short-term operators have, short-term rental operators have dealt with. Um, and the challenge for lenders is, you know, they 
there's originators and then there's who ends up with the loan. So from the originator's perspective, they want to be able to bundle up a bunch of these things and sell them off to someone else. And if you say, hey, I've got a, you know, a, a six-bedroom home that is making 33, 21, 76 in the first month, and then because there's, you know, variability in terms of when people pay and how many weeks are in a month and how many people are in a house at a given time, it's 32, 17, 19, you know, the next month and so on and so forth. Um, less seasonality, but just variability naturally kind of within from month to month. It, they look at that and they say, okay, the debt service coverage ratio is great, but I prefer to see 1500 bucks a month, 1500 bucks a month, 1500 bucks a month. So there are certain lenders who no doubt look at this and say, this isn't in our wheelhouse. I don't know how it appraises a six-bedroom house. No, thank you. However, we've built a pretty strong network of lenders who are comfortable with the model. They, they see that debt service coverage ratio and say, great, this looks perfect. And and ultimately, the way to think about it from an appraisal point of view is you're not really getting it appraised on the cash flow because if the lender had to dispose of the property, they would sell it as a single-family rental. So it's mm-hmm. maybe it was a four-bedroom house where you finish out a basement and now it's six bedrooms or, or what have you. It's essentially always treated as a four-bedroom house there and forever. So you're, you're getting it appraised uh, really at the ARV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've we have folks doing refis all the time, and we again we've uh, we've built up this network of lenders over time, whether it's acquisition debt or long term debt that uh, that make it pretty easy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Frank, we need to take a break. After which, we're going to answer some listener questions. Uh, and if you have one, by the way, listeners eight seven 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 two nine six five eight eight. Seven 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 two nine six five eight is the number, or send it on to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today, Frank Furman from Pad Splits. We're talking about Pad Splits, co-living arrangements, where you take a house that maybe you already own and you start renting it out by the bedroom, if it's the right house, and... Um, potentially make a lot more money on it while also providing some housing for some people who uh, cannot or choose not to be in the uh, rental market for lots of reasons. Uh, Frank is going to be making an appearance at the 2021 OREA National Real Estate Strategy Summit. We talked about that last week and a lot of people got a really killer deal on it, and uh, sorry if you weren't listening, because the really killer deal isn't available anymore, but there's still a moderately killer deal, a, a, a maiming-level deal instead of a killing-level deal. Uh, you can get your ticket from wmkvfm.org by making a pledge to the station. It's still cheaper than it's out there to the public. There's just a bonus that's not there this time. Come see Frank and 25 other awesome presenters who have something that is really market relevant that they are going to talk to you about how to do it. So uh, I've got a couple of questions here via email at asvina at gmail.com from Pat. Do you furnish things like pots and pans and utensils and dishes? And if so, how often do you have to end up replacing them and or the furniture? It's a great question, uh, Pat. And so the answer is nothing on the cutlery or pots and pans side. We What we recommend to hosts, and some folks do a little bit more, and I want to put their own personal touch on it, is 
none of that is required. Uh, most people are bringing their own, so it's it's essentially not something that's provided by the host. Um, as far as furniture goes, which is which is of course provided, it does happen occasionally. Um, you know, people break things occasionally. You know, if you buy cheap furniture, you you get cheap furniture. So um, it's relatively infrequent. I would say, you know, you're maybe replacing a bed every couple years on average, uh, chairs in sort of a dining area, and maybe a, a little more frequently than that. But it's, it tends to be a relatively minor line item in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And Pat also says, how do you work access to the property for maintenance, item replacements, et cetera? That's it. That's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. We have to give our tenants 24-hour notice here in Ohio to enter the property, but we don't have five different tenants to notice in a single house. Yeah, so um, as far as the access solutions, what we recommend are the keypad locks on front doors, so Wi-Fi enabled uh, you know, keypad locks so everyone can have their own code and you can have maintenance code and that kind of thing. Um it's a really interesting situation with this particular, uh, with as far as notice. Now, what I would, we have a messaging uh, service within our platform, so you can message anyone in the house at any time, whether it's as a group or as an individual. And I certainly would recommend doing that for um, just as a matter of courtesy and good practice to say, hey, you know, someone's coming through, that kind of thing. Um, what we found in essentially every jurisdiction that we're in is that. We are, you are allowed to access the property uh, for a maintenance request. And part of that, uh, one of the things that our platform does that's really unique in this space is that, let's say, you know, you and I are living in a house. We're both residents, but we don't know each other. You know, we're, we just happen to live in the same house. If I submit a maintenance ticket about a leaky sink, that maintenance ticket is replicated in your dashboard as well. And you see the communications on. And the reason that we, we built our system that way was so that, one, you would avoid duplicate tickets. So, you know, you don't also submit the same ticket for the same sink, um, which confuses the landlord. And the other reason is to keep you in the loop if someone does come by. So, you know, essentially that way, if the plumber comes the following day and you say, who are you? You know, I don't know if there's any problem with the sink. I don't use the upstairs one. You know, you don't send that person away. So it's, it's really to kind of keep everything kind of transparent in the house. And essentially that is, notice in that regard because it's going to everyone in the house Uh, you know so everyone is tied to that same maintenance request and it has been kind of communicated and it's at that request um still doesn't there's still no substitute for just generally being transparent about when people are going to be in the house also the lease is actually for the room so you are able to enter the common rooms at any time that is not uh it's accessing the rooms that you would need to give uh, advance notice to is is what we've we've worked out in essentially every jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we also have a question here from Hubert who says, "Do you get damage deposits from your tenants?" Great question. So the answer is not damage deposits. What we've actually worked out is doing a non-refundable move-in fee for each room. Default is a hundred dollars. It can be whatever whatever the host wants. And the idea is that that essentially covers the cost of the room turn and damage on the back end should it happen. It doesn't mean it always covers it and so on, but 
one of the one of our core convictions about this model is the way you keep it profitable is by essentially one spreading out your risk but two lowering the barrier to entry for someone to move in so one of the challenges in housing generally um but in particular around affordable housing is you know in the low-income space you're worried about damage you're worried about evictions you're worried about you know lack of payment bad debt so what do you do you maybe do two-month security deposit in places where it's allowed, or you do first and last month's rent, and you raise that barrier to entry. And that's part of the reason why it's very, very difficult to find affordable housing, because you it is made to be less affordable. What we found is that with a relatively modest move-in fee, in aggregate, it ends up covering the cost of the room turn. Some maybe a touch more, most are, in fact, far, far less. Um, but because it's non-refundable, you get that money up front. You get it on day one when the person moves in, and then, you know, if they move out in three months, well, okay, it covers the cost. Or if they move out in two years, well, okay, then you've had it from the start. But you don't have to worry about holding an escrow. You don't have to worry about, okay, how much do I refund or this or that. It's, you take it, you collect that money up front, and then because people are really managing just the room, okay, you know, someone may break a bed. It may happen. Okay, fine. But in aggregate over the course of many of these the answers no. And then we have some backstop insurance for kind of the emergency situations or, or damage that goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. Hubert also uh, wonders if all of your residents are on weekly rent or if some of them are on monthly and is it, if it, it where it's weekly, is it payday rent? It's a good idea to that collect is it a, on payday. That is a great question. And I, I, I swear Hubert isn't a plant, um, but I appreciate Hubert. <laughs> um, so one of our early insights in this business is that uh, landlords, and I, you know, I'm a landlord, um, are kind of lazy, right? And they aren't always very customer focused. And so what do landlords do for rent, right? They bill on the first. And the reason is lenders like it. You know, the bank likes it. It makes your collections easy, you know, easy for you to remember, make sure accounting easy. But it isn't great for customers. And if you really unpack a lot of evictions in this country, you see a situation where, take, take for example, uh, our friends at Rent-A-Center, the, the furniture rental company, they're smart, right? They bill at the end of the month. And the idea is most people pay their bills sequentially, you know, as they come in. And so some will say, hey, I got this furniture bill. It's the 25th. I'm going to pay that because I don't want to lose my couch. Okay, I get my cell phone bill. I'm going to pay that. You know, okay, great. And then the rent comes on the first, and they don't have the money, and then they get evicted. And then the furniture goes away and, and what have you. Uh, that might not be a good financial decision, but it is it is reality. Um, what we found is that by doing weekly payments as a default, uh, you're much closer, much more closely aligned with the payment schedules of the customer. And it's also much easier for people to remember. So when's the first of the month? You know, I'm not really sure. But when's Friday? Well, I know that's in two days. I get paid on Friday. Okay, it's much more intuitive. Mm-hmm. I know we've gone a step beyond that to really allow for customers, residents, to set their their payday whenever they want. So if you're paid on a Wednesday and you're paid every other week, great. You can set that as your payday. It flexes and adjusts. Um, and then that's part of the service that we provide to the to the property owner, to the host, is aggregating all those payments. And we do all the collections and everything. So that from your perspective, it you know, if you have six bedrooms, you know, there's four and change weeks in a month, you might have partial payments, you may have this person weekly, this person biweekly, all that's handled automatically by the platform, and you get one payout at the end of the month 
the difference is it's just much bigger than what it would have been traditionally. So you're working with a lot of people in a lot of markets that mm. that are doing these, and I know there's there's no single answer to this, but can you give us a range of typical for what one of these residents is, go- is going to pay for a bedroom where mm. they're sharing a bathroom, a uh, kitchen, a dining room, all that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So prices range on a weekly basis from kind of the low hundreds, call it 110, 115 for maybe not the best location, you know, shared bath, not great amenities to upwards of 250 a week. So call it between 450 and uh, 1100 bucks, maybe mm-hmm. all in on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I imagine that also so private baths go for a fair amount more, you know, that obviously you have some differences between metro areas. Um, there were in relatively comparable metro areas. I mean, Atlanta, Houston, New Orleans, Richmond, Jacksonville, Tampa, you know, we're not in New York, we're not in San Francisco, you know, we're, we're in kind of a, you know, secondary cities in general. Those markets are all still more expensive than Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> I can tell you that. So, so as I'm as I'm doing the math of maybe somebody is paying one twenty five a week in Cincinnati, Ohio, and mm-hmm. remembering that there aren't actually uh, four weeks in a month, there's actually yep. four and some change in most months, other than February. I'm working out that that would be five forty one a month for somebody to get a bedroom to themselves and then this other shared space. And I don't think there is, I know there's not a one bedroom apartment in Cincinnati available for that price, unless it's somebody who's, you know, lived there for 20 years and their rental housing providers just never raised their rent. But um, I don't even think you can get a studio for that. Not, Not even in like a CD area at this point. So the the financials for the resident are really clear. I'm I, I'm guessing that's yep. probably two hundred a month less than what they can get a a one bedroom apartment that be, would be comparable to what you were describing. Meaning, utilities are all paid, furnishers provided, all of that sort of stuff. Looking at the same, yep. looking at it from the other direction, which is that means there is more expense to the owner. Because they they are doing mm-hmm. something they're not used to doing, especially in a single family home, lawn care, not used to doing that in a single family home, utilities, all that stuff. What are you finding in general is the actual increase in net to the owner of the house? Yeah. So again, it, it depends a fair amount on the number of bedrooms, and some houses are, you know, much easier to get to say, you know, eight bedrooms. You know, something. Uh, you know, that, that's certainly possible for the right kind of asset. But the way I work with investors is if you can't get to a roughly, you know, closing in on 10% unlevered return on cost, maybe it's the wrong asset. And again, you know, maybe it's one you already own and it, you know, it still makes sense and you can get there. But, you know, I, I think you should generally be able to double your yield versus a traditional rental is, is kind of a good good rule of thumb. Double your yield and house a bunch of people who otherwise are unhoused or living on a friend's couch or something like that. That sounds like a good deal to me. We're going to take one more break, go back to listener calls, and then wrap this up. Uh, Again, last-minute listeners, uh, 
877-772-9658 with your questions or askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Before we get to the very dead end here, let me remind everybody that tomorrow night, Cincinnati Rea Meeting is online. It is open to the public. It is ladies who rock real estate. So if you're a gal getting into the business, you really want to get to know these this panel of six super powerful women investors, CincinnatiRia.com. A uh, question, Frank, from Pat. Do you pre-screen each tenant is question number one. And the answer is yes. So we do a background check, credit check, employment verification, income verification. So that's part of what we do at all costs uh, mm-hmm. for, for landlords. Mm-hmm. And then she's asking a question that is around what I think a lot of people are wondering about this, which mm-hmm. is... How does it actually work between the human beings? <laughs> she says, she says, do the tenants have to know each other? If not, do you start renting one bedroom at a time when not all four bedrooms are filled up? Yeah, because like that was my first thought. Like the thing, yeah. the thing that we associate th- this sort of housing with because it's an old idea is either the boarding house where there was in the movie, she'd be where she'd be in curlers. Right yeah, and her Bob house slipped. Right yeah. and 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 she would be the controlling force in there. She'd be the one shaking her finger at you and saying, "If I don't have your rent by tonight, I'm calling the sheriff." So that's one thing that this isn't. And then the other thing that we think of is when we go to college and we get together, four of our girlfriends, and we go we agree to go all sign a lease on a house together. And it's it's one lease though, and the house isn't furnished. Like it's it's those are both different situations. So, like, how does does it actually work to put five guys in a house together that don't know each other? And it's you know, and it, it's a great question, and I appreciate it. And the answer is, it works a lot better than you would think. And what's not intuitive about it is, you know, and I didn't say it, it always works perfectly because it doesn't. Um, but the fact that people are strangers in some ways is very helpful. And the reason for that is that people, you know, a, a question, a, a perhaps a, a edgier question that we get asked a lot is, oh, you know, all these strangers, what do you do about, you know, fights that, that people are at each other's throats and this and that. And the answer is, look, it, when you think about your experience as not just as a landlord, but in, in life, you know, the people who fight, you know, fight, fight, um, you know, husbands and wives fight, boyfriends and girlfriends fight, brothers fight, people who know each other and have a relationship fight. Strangers tend not to fight. Strangers may be passive aggressive or petty. They may not like each other. Um, they may not be best friends, but they tend not to fight. They seek privacy. They tend to get along in the sense that they try to avoid each other. And so we tend to have far fewer issues than oftentimes even having normal family rentals because people don't know each other. Uh, now, I will tell you that it isn't always perfect, and really what that's part of what we do for landlords. So we staff a 24-7 call center that is really there for inter-house disputes, inter-resident disputes. And what our customer service team is trained to do is 
to de-escalate those challenges. So we have a rating system, and if you know you and I are in the same house, you know we we get that call. It comes to us. It doesn't go to the landlord, and so it's hey, Frank ate my peanut butter. You know, okay, great. Give him a bad rating. You know, we have a rating system. Fine. Sometimes people just want to vent, and sometimes people want to move. Right. That's that's part of you know when we were talking earlier about the the cost savings and why it's very clear why people choose this kind of model. That is absolutely a big part of it. But another big part of it is the flexibility in that you don't have to sign a year-long lease. You know, you have uh, the ability to transfer within the network um, in, in a much easier way, in part because it's furnished, in part because it's a shorter commitment. And sometimes that's the release valve that you need. So I would this work if you were signing on to a year-long lease and couldn't get out of it? The answer is maybe not because, you know, it's rare, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to move for work. Sometimes you have to move because you, man, Frank keeps eating your peanut butter, uh, and that's just the reality of it. So, you know, we handle that. Uh, we have uh, a bunch of really talented customer service people whose job is very hard, and I, I wouldn't, I don't pretend to make it sound like oh, we, we handle them. It's all breeze because sometimes, uh, sometimes these women aren't ladylike, and sometimes these uh, young men aren't acting like gentlemen. But uh, you know, find a way to make it work, and most because people are strangers, it actually tends to work a lot better than, than you would think. Frank, we have three minutes left. Let's talk about regulation. Uh, yeah. There, I'm sure you have run across this every place you've been. So there's, <laughs> uh, we, we've, got, we've, got a, we've got a couple cities here in Ohio that have local ordinances that not more than three unrelated people can live together in the same house, which is frankly probably unconstitutional and a violation of fair housing law in any case. Yep. And there's regulations that say, oh, you can't have a boarding house. There's one of those in Cincinnati. It, yep. it says a boarding house. So what has your experience been with this sort of regulation and whether whether it's sometimes we'll just put one of these to death, like it just just it can't be done in a particular right. municipality? So you're right. And it is, it is a hyper-local regulatory regime. It's something that we come across all the time. And we have kind of a legal and policy team that does a lot of the research there. But it, it really can vary, you know, street to street in some cases. I mean, when you, especially when you get down to HOAs and neighborhood associations. I mean, we're in, in Atlanta, there are 83 different municipalities in the metro area. And we're in probably 20 of them. And some are very permissive and some are very, (laughs) very difficult to work in. So there's definitely an element of upfront, and it's why we like to get involved oftentimes pre-acquisition with investors to say, oh, really, you want to do it here? Uh, that's not such a great idea. Uh, and then the other aspect of it is, you know, like with all things in real estate, um, you can't make everyone happy, but you can certainly do things that are more in harmony uh, with, with the community than others. So it's also why we'd like to get involved really early on, because you know, even in a community where I, I would agree, if you probably have a violation of fair housing law to say you can't have more than three uh, unrelated parties in a house. It's also it's also sort of comical and probably not enforced. I mean, code enforcement is not coming around and counting toothbrushes. So if you did a five bedroom house and it's close to public transit or is ample parking or what have you, and the house is well managed and the grass is cut, you're really not going to have any issues because what is the problem it tends not to be top down but bottom up uh, right so I'll, I'll tell you the opposite end of the spectrum is you know sometimes investors get out a little bit over their skis or sometimes they just lose the neighbor lottery right and they move they start a house across from someone who 
does not want a rental property in their neighborhood. And that person will call code enforcement and what have you. And it doesn't matter if it is 100% allowed, you know, the city of Atlanta, which is really permissive zoning. Um, you know, we've had people call and call and say, you can't, you can't have a rental property on the street. So yes, you can. <laughs> it's America. Of course you can. Frank, um, I'm, I'm sorry. We are, we are out of time and we're running okay. up against the next show. So I really appreciate you sharing this. Looking forward to hearing more about it at the 2021 National Real Estate Summit, which y'all can get into at wmkvfm.org. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.